Hallowed Ground Storycast. I'm Anya. And I'm Alan, and this episode is about the movie that caused me to owe $400 to Blockbuster Video because I watched it every day for six months. A Knight's Tale. I don't understand this movie. Nor do I, but this movie understands us. I don't even know what that's from. Uh, it's it's from when they're doing that little feud in the middle. I don't understand women. Nor do I, but they understand us. Maybe not you. Uh, but it does exactly give me a little, give you a little bit of insight into how I was feeling about this movie as I was watching it. <laughs> I told you last time I was like, your strange literalness might get messed up watching this movie. It's, I think uh, it was something else, but we can get to there. You should start out by just talking about what happened. All right. So A Knight's Tale is about uh, the peasant squire William, who creates uh, the persona Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein. Uh, so he can compete in jousting tournaments. Uh, he falls in love with a noblewoman, Jocelyn, who is being courted by the elite jouster, Count Adamar. And while Adamar is called away to war, William and his lovable support team dominate the tournament circuit. William impresses the future king of England with his honor and tenacity, and all the while, William and Jocelyn grow closer. In London, William returns to his peasant home to tell his father that he has become a knight. However, Adamar reveals the secret of William's birth, and he is arrested. The crown prince releases William and knights him, which allows him to return to the tournament and defeat Count Adamar. A Knight's Tale was a 2001 movie written and directed by Brian Hegeland. Uh, it stars Heath Ledger, Rufus Sewell, Shannon Sossaman, Paul Bettany, Laura Frazier, Mark Addy, and Alan Tudyk. It was entirely filmed in the Czech Republic, and the movie had a budget of $65 million and earned $117 million worldwide, which is like kind of a semi-flop uh, for the movie. It kind of didn't meet expectations, but it, it... doubled its money, though. Like, that's not... I think they look for, like, domestic doubling, and then like worldwide is like gravy so it's oh, like oh i see yeah but i mean th this was like a big hit on like uh you know reruns on tv and dvd sales and that's how i saw it was on dvd uh a couple years later so i guess i'm part of the problem because i didn't see this in the theater <laughs> okay so when we were planning this episode you suggested this in reaction to my pick of bend it like beckham for kind of like an early 2000s teen-centric movie uh, that meant a lot to you. Um, yeah. And like, I was honestly a little surprised. But then as soon as I read the doc and saw that this movie caused you to owe over $400, I was like, oh, of course we're, this is why we're podcasting about it. <laughs> um, so can you, I, I need more information, just like, what yeah more please <laughs> yeah it was um i was going to college right like after high school and then uh i took a year off of school and then uh kind of traveled around the country for that year and then i i came back to baton rouge uh to louisiana state university um and when i came back i would like had a different living situation i wasn't in the dorms anymore 
I had like a DVD player. I had my own TV. Um, and I started to like really aggressively try to watch every movie that had ever been made. Um, oh my in God. an attempt. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was basically like, I talked about this a little bit in the crouching tiger, hidden dragon, um, where like I was at LSU as a creative writing major, but all of the creative writing teachers were like, we don't want uh, genre writers to come out of this program. We only want like literary writers. We want like prestigious names to associate with the college. Right. You um, can't you can't come out of this program and write dragon porn because that will be embarrassing. Exactly. Right. And so the stuff that I'm interested in writing, like I'm reading like Robert Jordan, uh, George R.R. R. Martin, you know, Tolkien. And that's the kind of stuff that I want to write. The, I can't learn how to do what I want to do because no one will teach me. So I have to dissect stories and try to like reverse engineer what's going on, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why like I would go to Blockbuster and like get a bunch of movies and then, you know, bring them back in a couple of days and get a bunch more movies and just sit there and take notes and try to like story wonk my way through that shit. And so I got a Knight's Tale and also uh, the other movie that we talked about last time, uh, Titus, the Titus Andronicus adaptation. And then those two movies together, uh, kind of like the alchemy of them caused me to like have this big breakthrough. And I was like, I had already seen like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and I kind of like understood story structure in a more fundamental way. And then with these two, I was like, oh, because I can like sit here and I can like map out every little thing. And I kept those movies for like six months. And back then you had to like return the movie in like three days or you started yeah. to get late fees. Oh, my God. I remember that. <laughs> I watched this movie probably at least once a day. For like six months. Sometimes it was like three or four times in a day. And this movie is two and a half hours, which number one was the first confusing thing. Because the first night we tried to watch this movie, I had some stuff I was working on. So I was like working later from home after dinner. And I was like, oh, well, it's like nine o'clock. We still have time to watch the movie, right? Like it can't be that long. It's a movie. It's like a teen movie about nights. And then we looked up the running time and we're like two and a half hours. Like, Jesus. <laughs> What is wrong with this movie? <laughs> it has a running time that puts it more in league with like Lord of the Rings and Avengers <laughs> and, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. less in line with the sort of like teeny rom-coms of the early 2000s. No, and this is like in that same era. I think this was a little bit long and, and that probably... Uh, you know, because Lord of the Rings was not like standard back then, right? Oh, and yeah. No, Lord of the Rings kind of like normalized three hour exactly. movies again. That's probably why part of the reason why the um, returns were a little bit lower than they wanted, because it is a little bit long. But this movie is fun. Like it never feels long to me. It didn't feel like a two and a half hour long movie to me. Yeah. <laughs> so I racked up this huge debt, right, with Blockbuster Video. And eventually, like... I think like a month into this, I was like, oh, this is bad because I'm like just a college student. I I had a job delivering pizzas. That's like how I paid my bills. And I'm like, I can't afford this situation. Like I should have just gone out and bought these uh, bought these movies. It would have been cheaper at this point. And then in like month two, I'm like, I'm never fucking taking these movies back. Like <laughs> I'm like, just going to keep just mine now. Yeah. 
<laughs> but I think I did finally like drop them off in the middle of the night, you know, through their little slip door thing. Mm-hmm. And then I, I never interacted with Blockbuster Video again. And then they went out of business and I was like, oh, perfect. Great. I'm so glad. <laughs> So you don't actually know what your final bill was. You're just like guessing. I think they sent me letters oh. <laughs> that I ignored. Blockbuster Video was like it. If you were going to rent videos, you know, back then, uh, I quickly got a Netflix account after this. And Netflix was like brand spanking new. And you would get the DVDs in the mail and keep them for as long as you want and send them back, um, which I thought was amazing. It was like the best thing that had ever happened. It's not that Titus Andronicus and A Knight's Tale are like such exemplary great movies that like they became kind of fundamental to how I was um, teaching myself how to write stories or how story works or anything like that. In fact, like there are all kinds of like not exactly problems in this movie, but weirdness in this movie. And because of that, because it's so non-standard, I was able to like kind of work my way in there intellectually and kind of like decode what was happening, or I think I did. And that helped to teach me like how genre fiction, this kind of genre fiction was working, like what makes this sports movie tick like when is it funny when is it not when is it serious um and all of that stuff and then try to figure out like why that two and a half hours just flies by when you watch it why are you laughing and crying and feeling all the feelings you know Mm -hmm. so i liked the movie what did you think (laughs) (laughs) so i only had a chance to watch this movie once um because i've been traveling quite a bit as the the quote at the top kind of revealed this movie confused me a lot while I was watching it but that doesn't mean I had a bad time like it was definitely like a really fun movie watching experience but I also was kind of like what is even happening (laughs) the whole time (laughs) it was going on and I don't think it was the the like weird anachronisms or you know my like strangely literal nature that did that um, I think the structure of this movie is genuinely, like, kind of weird. And so reading the Wikipedia page helped a little bit because I think if you look at the story from William's perspective, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But if you know that this was basically inspired by Chaucer, uh, the author of Canterbury Tales, and the fact that there's like a six month period in his life where he basically disappeared. And so like knowing that this movie was a little bit inspired by thinking about, okay, what could Chaucer have possibly been doing during his like six month off the record hiatus? Um, And so in Canterbury Tales, there is a story called A Knight's Tale. Um, And I'm sorry for taking some of your thunder because I know you wanted to talk about this. Um, Because it's not like, you know, from, you know, Lonnie Diane Rich's approach to story, the like how story works philosophy, right? You have, you know, you want to have like a protagonist starting out with like a really well-defined goal, an antagonist that's kind of like in their way. And then ultimately they have to either succeed or not succeed. Mm -hmm. And I feel like William's motivations 
just like aren't that strong (laughs) and they kind of like drift around yeah no i agree like i think the clearest statement of william's goals are basically to become a knight and Mm -hmm. he meets that goal super early (laughs) like in the first half hour (laughs) the driving force of his motivation that you should be feeling throughout the whole movie you don't even find until like way towards the end his ultimate goal becomes to defeat Adamar, but that doesn't become his goal until again, like halfway through the movie. So I think that's what made this a really confusing experience to watch for the first time. Most movies, you have like strong motivations from the beginning and then you kind of like work towards it throughout the whole movie. And then at the end you either achieve it or not. And in this movie, (laughs) it was like, like as, anachronistic as the movie's style and music is, the, like, structure and character motivations are also kind of, like, non-chronological. If not exactly non-chronological, they're certainly, like, non-standard in a way that, like, causes clunkiness in exactly the way that you're describing. Yeah. No, I agree uh, with everything you're saying. And like I said, I don't think that this, like, either this or Titus Andronicus are like of a high quality they're not like the godfather or something uh that's kind of like airtight and because it was not airtight that's like why i was able to get in there and start to like reverse engineer it you know what i mean yeah no and that's and that's kind of what i'm seeing too right that like after watching that movie i was sort of like okay that was definitely not standard and so Mm -hmm. like what about it made it not standard I know the director writer had like the concept uh, for this movie for a long time in his head. He said like for years and years, like, and it, but it was mostly about Chaucer. And if you watch the um, deleted scenes uh, from the DVD, which I didn't share with you, I didn't really know the discussion would go in this direction. Um, But almost all of the deleted scenes are Chaucer. Um, Mm, and they're like about his life and like, you know, his, like his marriage, like he has to like, he's like, we have to go to this other town because my wife's there and we have to go do this stuff. I feel like, uh, William and Jocelyn and all of that is kind of like incidental to like the core concept that he had. Like you said, um, Mm -hmm. that this like explains a few of the Canterbury tales, you know, that that Chaucer had. It explains the knight's tale, the summoner's tale, the pardoner's tale. Yeah. Like all kinds yeah, of that whole scene where he's like, Go on, be gone, I'm done with you. Except to exact my revenge. What on earth could you possibly do to us? I will eviscerate you in fiction. Every last pimple, every last character flaw. I was naked for a day. You will be naked for eternity. I have a feeling we shall meet again. (laughs) Yeah. So it like that was kind of the idea that the writer had was more around Chaucer than around William. And I think that it shows in the movie there's like a lot a lot of the fun and like awesomeness of the movie isn't contained in the Chaucer character. Yeah. And Paul Bettany did such a good job. Oh, God. He like fucking blows it out of the water so hard. What this movie really needs is, uh, and I don't often think this, but like a frame for the narrative would probably be really good um, that was about the Canterbury Tales itself. 
opening the movie showing like Chaucer writing and starting with A Knight's Tale because that's the first story in A Canterbury Tales. You know, him kind of adapting his experiences in his mind and then we move into the narrative of William so that you understand like what all of this is. Like you said, like it gives it more context and uh, and you can understand. And, and yeah, you would need to motivate... William differently because I don't think he gets a strong motivation until he meets Jocelyn. Um, and yeah. then it's about like competing with Adamar for her attention and then retaining everything that he's gained once Adamar reveals his secret. And so speaking of Jocelyn, the one part of this movie that I actually like truly did not like was in the middle of his relationship with Jocelyn when they like, all of a sudden just like get super snippy and mad at each other for like no fucking reason. <laughs> oh, the stupid boy with a lance and uh and all Yeah, that stuff. like I don't know. It just it seemed like they were doing okay and then all of a sudden like he got mad at her for no reason and then she got mad at him for no reason and then they just made up and it was it seemed like they were trying to insert drama, but it didn't feel motivated. It just felt like, wow, both of you guys are being assholes. Neither of you deserve each other. <laughs> I think uh, the reason that he's rude to her, I mean, he has no good reason to be rude to her. In in that part of the story, he's angry because um, like at that point, he has his uh, Nike armor. He's like gotten really good at jousting. And he's finally in a tournament with Adamar again, but the crown prince enters the tournament as well. And Adamar drops out of the tournament mm -hmm. uh, bef before the two of them can joust against each other and get the rematch that William uh, is craving so that he can prove that he's better than Adamar. And even though William wins that tournament, he feels like he did not win it because he never faced Adamar. I see. Yeah, so like he's he's being a a little whiny bitch uh when Jocelyn shows up and she's like, "Hey, let's party. Let's, you know, have fun." And uh and he's like, "No, I can't have fun. I'm mad." Uh and then she's like, "Well, fuck you for being mad, asshole. Like I didn't do anything." And he's like, "You no." And so they just fight and then it's it's all because of his bad attitude and she's like fuck you with your bad attitude i you know don't treat me like that which is actually something that i like about her that she doesn't put up with bullshit yeah i guess maybe i wasn't following that thread closely enough at that point like i just it seemed super out of nowhere and i wasn't really connecting it with the him being annoyed from the tournament stuff one of my favorite parts of the movie is the makeup letter uh I really like that whole thing, how all of them work on it and how it gets delivered and the message she sends back, like all of that's very fun. Mm -hmm. But then when she gets mad at him, it's after the makeup letter and she's just like pissed that he like can't speak in the same poetry that he used in the letter or something like. Oh, I like that too, though. <sighs> okay, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, you're allowed to not like it. Of yeah. course, you'd like whatever you like. Uh, the reason that I like that is because like she wants love on her terms. She doesn't want him to like act like all the other knights. She wants like she's like, you sent me poetry. I want more of that poetry. And he's like, uh, 
I'm not ready for that. And she's like, well, tough shit if you're not ready for it. Like, I'm ready for it. Like, this this relationship is, you know, you're making up to me, so make it up to me. Like, do, you know, come on. Okay. And so, like, it's not on... I I like that a lot of the relationship, the timing of it, and the way that it happens is um on her terms you're you're warming me up on that so i'm not trying to talk you out of your uh your reading of the movie at all like you know i do think it's all kinds of clunky and uh and there's definitely weirdness around their relationship it's more dramatic um maybe than it has a right to be Mm -hmm. Um, just because there's reasons in the script doesn't mean that they necessarily make like a lot of emotional sense or that they're pulled off in a way that feels authentic right yeah the other thing that felt like a bit incomplete to me was the movie is kind of hammering on themes of gender equality and like how women's self-actualization and all of that and then like ultimately it doesn't matter in the end like the end is all about the dudes doing their doodly things Yeah, I know. I agree with you. And it kind of just like, it doesn't go anywhere. I think the movie could have been improved if they had been like hitting on all of those feminist things and then somehow Jocelyn did something that actually mattered in the end to like how it got resolved. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, she goes and gets his father, but that makes no material difference. Um, Yeah. You know, you could argue that Kate makes a material difference on the team. Um, in terms oh, of being a blacksmith. Yeah, it's a little bit smurfetti, which didn't really bother me that much. But I do love that there is a woman on the team who does not have a love interest with any of them. And yeah, she's like very integral to their success. And she's allowed to just like be a part of the team. So like in Bend It Like Beckham, I was saying how um, the coach from that team is in Titus Andronicus uh-huh. as a bad guy. Uh, Kate from this movie is in Titus Andronicus. Really? Uh, yeah. And so uh, she's also one of the main characters in uh, Neverwhere, which is a BBC adaptation of a Neil Gaiman book that me and my wife really love. I really like that actress. So if we're going to talk about actors, I feel like we should point out that Mark Addy, who plays another one of the Squires, also plays Robert Baratheon in Game of Thrones. When I watched the premiere of Game of Thrones, I was like, it's Roland. (laughs) He's like, he's the king. Cool. Uh, It's a very different role, though. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, hugely. He's very nurturing in A Knight's Tale. He's making clothes and some of the um, deleted scenes in the movie are about his romance with Jocelyn's handmaiden. Oh, um, interesting. They have like a thing. Yeah. It's cute, but it, it would have made the movie even longer uh, for no good reason, but you can still see it in the movie sometimes. Like the first time he sees uh, the handmaiden, his like his mouth falls open and Chaucer kind of reaches over and closes it. But yeah, there's, you know, an Alan Tudyk who's like in a gazillion things and is always good. This was the first thing that I ever saw him in. And he's so aggressively ginger. (laughs) I was like, why did they do that to him? Unless that's his actual hair color and everyone else just made him blonde. I don't know. It might have been like color correction or something. I wonder about that. Like (laughs) the colors kind of pop in this movie. Maybe they just did it in such a way where they're like, oh, damn, Alan's hair is. Oh, well, what are you going to do? 
I don't think they could have achieved that without like a lot of hair dye. I think, I think, I <laughs> know. I think you're right. I think they just wanted it to like stand out and like Jocelyn's hair is amazing throughout. At one point when she had the kind of like spiky red parts, uh, yeah. Uh, Chris was like, "Oh my god, she looks like Rufio." <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I love all of the anachronisms. That was like, that's probably my favorite thing about the movie. And Jocelyn is like full of anachronisms, like Mm -hmm. from, you know, her behavior, how she wants to be self-actualized and is not scared to do it. And no one's ever um, really stopping her from doing it. I mean, Adamar is getting ready to stop her, but and then the way she dresses and all of that stuff is just really fantastic. Like the first time I watched this, I was confused by the anachronisms, like the music and stuff. But it was with Jocelyn and especially with that one scene where they start dancing that I was like, oh, this is all on purpose. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand the purpose of why all of this is happening. And then that's when I started to like really deconstruct it was because of that particular scene where she had the Rufio hair. Because the, the movie like kind of oscillates back and forth right between this like medieval idiom where like at the beginning of the movie Roland is talking about like he's dead the spark of his life is covered in shite like how do you want me to say like (laughs) they're speaking in like this medieval way but then immediately after that it's playing you know we will rock you with electric guitars coming out of the trumpets of the heralds or whatever standing in front of the local lord and so you're like what what like that doesn't make any sense um but i don't i don't know how you felt about it but like eventually i came to the conclusion that like the director was intentionally um trying to translate like the medieval context into modern times and i was like really blown away by that idea It's not that she's literally dressed that way. She's like dressed in a, you know, 1300s appropriate hairstyle and dress in a literal way for Will. But she appears the way that she does to us so that we feel about her the way that Will does, if that makes sense. Yeah, this is how I interpret it. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, And I, yeah, I completely agree and think that um, they pulled that off really well. And it's, of course, like, one of the like defining and most endearing aspects of the movie. I I love all that stuff. And then the way that the Black Knight's armor is like so elaborate and huge and the music and all of that. Just the way that it works and you feel like completely pumped up the way that you do in a good sports movie. Like it doesn't require all this context that you would have to have to watch like a realistic medieval period movie. Which is so cool. And like the movie is very beloved. Like people love this movie, I think, because of all of the fun that comes from those anachronisms. Yeah. So speaking of fun, I want to make this uh, all slow way down and get really boring and just have people tune right out. So like if you're driving, maybe get your pillow ready, uh, make sure (laughs) your airbags are set. Um, the, The way that you and I talk about stories Um, The kind of readings that we typically do are based on like a social justice framework and uh, a lot of times on a feminist framework. Like those are the types of readings that we do. Um, I don't know if you'd agree with that. Um, Sure. At least we try. Yeah, we try. I don't know if we're always successful. 
And so like there, for people who aren't familiar, like there are different ways to read a story. Like, um, like you mentioned Lonnie, I think Lonnie Diane Rich, um, will read a story also through social justice frameworks, but she reads them through a story theory framework, especially her own work on story theory. Yeah, her her primary lens is through like the structure of protagonist, antagonist, and conflict. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and so there are all kinds of readings you can do, right? You can do like a Freudian reading where you take the work of Freud and like lay that over the work and see how that interacts. There's just um, penises everywhere. <laughs> everyone wants to be with their mom. One framework that I have used uh, since early college when I came across it in my own readings uh, comes from Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, who is like more well known for like his philosophy, especially like nihilism and stuff um, for saying that God is dead. Um, But he did write some stuff about like story theory uh, that's way less well known, but was extremely interesting and helpful to me for like my entire life ever since I read it. But it's not something that I've ever brought up in the interpretations that we do because it's, I'd have to explain it and I'm not a good teacher and I, you know, it would be confusing and boring. So, uh, but I'm going to do it anyway, uh, because (laughs) it's our podcast and we can do what we want. Well, when it comes to this movie, it doesn't work very cleanly in like exactly the same way that you were talking about how the structure is not very clean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's just interesting to me. It's part of why this story opened up to me. So I'm going to try to explain it and, um, Nietzsche was looking at like ancient Greek tragedy and he had this idea that um, all of the tension in a story is fueled by this kind of polarity that happens. Um, And on one pole you have Apollo um, who is like the God of the sun and mathematics and logic. And then on this other pole, you had Dionysus, who is like the god of wine and partying, and like he's more like chaotic. In a tragedy, inside of the main character, the tragic figure, you will have this motion from logical impulses to chaotic impulses, or individualistic impulses to social impulses. Uh, and and the push and pull between those opposite forces in the character are what create tragedy and drama in the story. Like I under I guess I understand the contrast between like individual and social and between like rational and chaotic. Mm-hmm. But I'm not always sure that like individual and rational, and social and chaotic are, same are necessarily aligned, right? Because I feel like in a lot of tragedies, it's actually kind of the opposite, right? Like, like a lot of times society is pushing you to do the like good rational thing, and then it's your individual chaotic impulses that end up being your downfall when you decide to like murder people, for instance. <laughs> if if we're right. gonna go like all tragedy, I don't know. It depends on how you want to like define 
uh, rational. Yeah, right? I guess I haven't read a lot of Greek tragedy specifically. Like my experience with tragedy comes almost solely from Shakespeare. Romeo and Juliet, it's like the sort of like social imposed view is somewhat like rational and rule based. And then it's like their individual chaotic impulses that push them to like fight against that. But well, yeah, I would say, well, for one thing, Nietzsche said that like all good theater ended with the Greeks. So he thought Shakespeare was crap. Okay. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I mean, I don't agree with him on that, of course. Uh, but yeah, so if you wanted to do um, the Apollonian Dionysian reading on Romeo and Juliet, I'm sure somebody's done this. But just my ad hoc reading of that would be that uh, the pro-social forces in that story are that the Montagues and Capulets cannot uh, intermarry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the pro-social rules. And then the individualistic impulses are that Romeo and Juliet want to be together. And the interaction between those polarities is what causes the problem, right? It's Yeah, but it seems to me that like the, the social side is more quote-unquote rational, and the individual is more chaotic. The reading on that tends to be uh, personal. There's like there's a lot of writing on this uh, that like people who favor individualism, like me, uh, will tend to see more rationality on the individualistic side. So like in Romeo and Juliet, you say, well, it's rational that if you fall in love with someone, you want to be with them. And it's irrational to follow the norms of society if they are like... You know, there's no good reason for Montagues and Capulets to not be together. The rules are that way because of like a feud that has nothing to do with them. Uh, So it's irrational. I guess it depends on how you define rational, right? Like, I guess I was thinking of rational as being like, like rule based Mm -hmm. and kind of detached. But you could think of it more as just like logic, you know, like or like following human nature. Yeah, because like Nietzsche's idea is that when you get into a crowd, you lose your autonomy and you start to go along with what everybody else thinks. And he considers this to be irrational behavior. Okay. Um, Okay. No, that totally makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. So like I call it pro-social behavior and I tend to think of it like I've modified um, Nietzsche's uh, entire framework here uh, because like I'm an arrogant ass. Uh, and so like the way that I read about, read this whole thing is individualism versus like pro-social, uh, institutionalism. Okay. Uh, So like, yeah. So like I said, you know, like Montague's and Capulets versus we want to be in love. I love that like somehow A Knight's Tale is the movie that where we end up talking about Nietzsche. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I was saying. Like, you know, set your cars to drift. You know, it's like, okay, okay. this might be less fun than you were expecting. Okay, but so Um, how does this apply to A Knight's Tale specifically? Sure. So when you try to lay this framework over A Knight's Tale, it's very messy in the same way that what your structuralist interpretation of the movie revealed like a lot of clunk in that trunk right Mm -hmm. uh what are the individualistic motivations in this story right like um william wants to become a knight right so that is kind of like a motion from being on the outside to going into the social 
so like he wants to move up and rank and be a part of the nobility. Mm-hmm. Well, mostly he just wants to be good at jousting, but in order to do that, he has to move up and rank. Right. Yeah. So exactly. So does is the goal the rank itself to become a part of that society, or is it to um, self actualize himself? Is he actually moving? out of the social institutionalist structure of peasanthood and into like self-actualization of doing what he wants to do. Um, and, and the motion is in the opposite direction of what I'm saying. And, and like, it's not clear in the movie and at different times in the movie, it, it's different. Interesting. Well, so I don't think you, this is in the doc, but I don't think you actually said it out loud. So you might want to, that the, the stories arc from one to the other. Yeah. Okay. So typically in, a movie or like in any story that you try to apply this framework to, you're going to make like an arc from one polarity to another. And it's usually very clean. And it's funny because like, this is not a popular story interpretation framework. Um, it's like, it's very nerdy. It's very like academic. Uh, but despite that, like, stories adhere to this like very cleanly all the time. Like you can apply this framework to just about any story you can think of and really quickly pick out the arc from either like a pro-social kind of beginning to an individualistic end or vice versa. I do this every time that I watch a movie or, or read a book, I do this interpretation because it helps me to Think about how some of the politics are operating. Most stories are pro-social. When you try to do this to a knight's tale, it's real messy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't work very well. The end state of this movie, William is nobility. He is knighted by the realm. But at the beginning of the movie, you know, like he has limited liberty, even though he like chooses to do this, he really doesn't actually have any other choice he's the only other choice is that he's gonna go be a peasant for some other noble person and so it it feels to me more like he's just moving from one set of institutional rules to another and like that motion applies to jocelyn she's not really self-actualized she's just like is a princess and then becomes someone's wife and like it's it's like it's the same thing for everyone. There's no no one is really moving from like, you know, from social to individual or from uh, individual to social. Like, I don't know. What do you think about all that? Can you get a better bearing on it than me? I don't think so. Like, I'm not sure how well that framework works for this movie. And it was in doing that that I was like, wow, this movie is messed up. And like the structure is messed up. And then I started to pick it apart. Solani always says, right, that like the way a story ends tells you what it means. Mm-hmm. And the way this story ends, right, is basically with Adamar getting his comeuppance, like them all standing in the circle around him and saying, um, You have been weighed. You have been measured. And you absolutely have been found wanting. Welcome to the new world. God save you, if it is right that he should do so. Right. Um, it's a quote from the Old Testament. Yeah. Even though the movie is like kind of about 
William. I think it's mostly just about assholes get owned. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the movie has like messy politics, not messy in the way of like, oh, these are bad ideas, but like it doesn't know exactly. It thinks it's more political than it is. Yeah. Um, Because there's like a lot of class politics in this, but like at the end of the day, like I said, you know, he's a peasant when he starts the movie and then he's part of the nobility at the end. And it's like, you didn't like you got through, but like, what about everybody else? Like you're like Chaucer is turning around and saying, and for all of you people not sitting on a pillow. Oh yeah. You know, I'm here for you and I'm here all week and I'm against the nobility. But at the end of the day, this is a story of like somebody entering the nobility via the royalty. Like he's part of the system now. He's a defender of the king at the end of this movie. And it's like, this is weird. Like, Oh, yeah. And like, even though a lot of the knights are portrayed as assholes, like Edward, the actual crown prince, is portrayed as like a solid good dude. Mm hmm. Right. So you're supposed to feel good about the monarchy on the whole. Yeah. Even though it's the source of like all of the political strife that William experiences and that they're ostensibly fighting against with each of the other opponents, you know, in terms of like consistency within the movie. Like when you actually stop and think about the politics of the movie, like it it doesn't actually make sense. Okay. So I. I do have one other thing to say as far as, like, peasants go, so, and this is, like, completely extra textual, some stuff that I've been reading recently um, about the history of the plague, and specifically, like, the Black Death that happened in Europe in, like, the, I think it was, like, 1340s uh, to 50s. Um, right like, the, pl- the plague had been around for a while, but, like, specifically the Black Death version of the plague, um was, like, immediately predating this movie, which I think is, like, ostensibly set in the 1370s. Mm, well, yeah, mm, kind of. Yeah, I mean, very in a very messy way. Um, yeah, But basically, very. so, like, the Black Death killed half of all Europeans, and it really destabilized the feudal system um, mm-hmm. because... Suddenly, there was like a huge shortage of labor, you know, like the peasants who hadn't had a lot of autonomy or, you know, like ability to negotiate on their behalf in terms of like their relationship to the lords. Suddenly, it was like, oh, you know, like if you're not going to pay me what my labor is actually worth, like, fuck you, I'm just going to go over to that other lord. Like he's paying people more because... You know, like, he really needs peasants, and so, like, I'm going to go over there where stuff's better. And it basically, like, it really changed the status of peasants and, like, their ability to kind of negotiate better conditions for their labor. And so the Black Death really kind of, like, brought about the end of feudalism in the way that it had previously been operating. And then that leads into, like, the Renaissance and stuff, right? right? Where, yeah... Yeah, where you get more automation and like the technology around agriculture gets better because it has to get better because there's not enough people to farm the land. Yeah. And then as far as like other bringing actual history context into this movie, um, I did love the like the feuding with the Frenchman in the bar. Oh, yeah. That's Um, good. (laughs) You know, because like at this point, England and France were in the middle of the Hundred Years War. 
Mm-hmm. And so, like, when Adamar goes off um, to, like, fight his battles or whatever, like, that was, like, a real battle between England and France in the Hundred Years' War. Right. And <laughs> and my, my roommate's comment on that was basically, like, oh, Adamar really wanted to go fight in this tournament, so he basically just, like, committed a bunch of war crimes so he would be recalled. <laughs> and he was like, that's really evil, but, like, I actually, like, kind of admire it strategically. Like, good on him to figure <laughs> out a way to get back. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah, it speaks to, like, a, a kind of, um, a, a discontinuity, or, like, maybe it's on purpose, that that the movie has between like the idea of what a knight is and like the idea of what chivalry is. I think William like really embodies a lot of that um, very nicely. And then like the reality of what knights were like is closer to Adamar. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like that historical behavior is closer to Adamar, but of course, you know, William never has to go to war. So like, it's easy for him to kind of adhere to the, ideals of chivalry because like he's never faced with life and death situations that are happening because two landlords are fighting over something you know what i mean like yeah no he's in it for the actual like sport not for like the real soldier stuff it kind of flattens and simplifies what knighthood is you know you know like William good, Adamar bad, but it doesn't deal with like the complexity of like actually knights existed to kill people um, and, and enforce the king's law. It's fine because like it's entertainment. It doesn't need to deal with that stuff. But like, you know, uh, the stuff that you're bringing up with the Hundred Years War and stuff is kind of why I said that the timeline is messy because that five years that Chaucer's missing or whatever. I think six um, months, according to Wikipedia. Oh, I'm sorry. The most yeah. prestigious of sources. No, you're right. That six months that Chaucer is missing um is like it doesn't line up with the battles that Adamar is fighting. Like I think there's like a five year gap in there or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it doesn't exactly match up. It doesn't have to line up, but it's like it's just kind of messy mm-hmm. um, when you start talking about the actual history. Which I'm sure that the writer director thought zero people would ever be doing. You know, when he wrote and made this movie, that anybody would care or nitpick on this on the level that we are but like here we are but yeah i i like what you're saying that um that biological forces kind of are were a bigger impact than like the magna carta or like anything like that right like it's weird the kind of things that change history it's not necessarily like um some kind of social movement from the ground up it was like just economic marxist forces that like there ain't enough of us to do all the farming. You better pay us more, yeah. basically, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's also really interesting because Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is really strongly influenced by this Italian book by Boccaccio called The Decameron. There's like a frame story and it's like a hundred stories within that. And it's um, they're all told by a group of people who are fleeing Florence in order to escape the Black Death. Um, And so, yeah, and it became like a pretty important part of medieval literature. So, yeah, the Black Death has like (laughs) really, really influences like everything about um, this story and like how it fits into history. It basically set up the end of feudalism and then like it, you know, created the book The Decameron that then influenced Canterbury Tales, um, which then, of course, like led to the creation of A Knight's Tale. So really, it's like only two steps away. (laughs) 
But yeah, I, I think the movie is like trying to posit that like there's some kind of beginning of a meritocracy or like, you know, with all the other anachronisms in the movie, I think it's it's trying to like associate William with like Western liberal democracy in a way that just like doesn't it's not earning that, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like he's he is a guy who works hard to be what he wants to be and he's struggling really hard against a system and all of that stuff. But like the place where he lands, when you actually think about the politics of it, just are too uncomfortable to be the thing that it thinks that it is. I think. Yeah. I think the biggest theme in this movie is identity and it, I think the movie actually works really nicely around this theme in the ways that it was messy and all the other ways. I think this part is very clean and um, might have been like more front of mind for the writer when he was creating it. Um, it works really well on like a per character basis. So like, uh, for example, like William, the main character, he <clears throat> creates another persona to hide his class. So basically, like he's transforming his identity to be closer to the person that he actually wants to be. And that's contrasted by Adamar who hides behind the class that he has in order to disguise who he really is on the inside. Um, this very selfish person, right, who doesn't actually care about, like, how Jocelyn feels when, you know, he's talking to her. Like, he's in negotiations with her father in order to, like, own her. He, he doesn't care about who she is. But when he's in front of her, he does act as if he cares about that. Um and he acts like he cares about what's fair and right when he reports William to the authorities to get him arrested. But the real reason he's doing it is to stop him from uh, beating him in the tournament. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, um, controlling your identity in that way is a theme between those two characters. It also happens with Jocelyn, uh, who... When we first meet her, she refuses to give her name to William. Uh, she won't acknowledge the romantic advances of any of the knights who are like, are all making this parade in front of her. And they're like, I'll win this for you, my lady. I'll win this for you, my lady. And she's like, whatever. <laughs> Just keep walking. So it like in that way, she's not um, playing into her class. She's obscuring like who she is in order uh for like it requires William to get to know who she actually is and like invest in who she is because she says I don't want to um like I don't want to be silent mm -hmm. I want to be with someone who will listen to me and so she has to kind of suppress her class in order to be who she really wants to be and at the end of the movie she says that she's willing to run away with William and completely drop her class and like live in a house with the pigs um, if it means that they can be together. Which I feel like is a good place to point out that while we were watching this movie, my husband was like, wait, is this just Aladdin with jousting? <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good comparison, actually. Um, I think you sent that to me and I was like, oh, wow, that's uh, that's really smart because like Aladdin has all the same political problems that I just mentioned in this movie where like a peasant is elevated to the nobility. I think he's like the crown prince by the end of the whole thing. Yeah. And it's like, uh, 
you just tacitly endorsed the entire feudal system, Disney. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, like, know, but maybe they're fine with that. You know, I used to be starving and having to steal bread to survive, but like, it's okay that all those other people are still doing that because now I can eat whatever I want. Right, exactly. Like, one person got out of the system. Yay! It's It doesn't, uh, it's not very heroic. No. Yeah, it has a very, like, Aladdin, Princess Jasmine, like, feel yeah. to parts of it. Also, it, like, doesn't say that much about those other knights that, like, he's basically manages to become the best knight of all time with, like, maybe a month of practice, you know? And he starts off really bad. <laughs> <laughs> he wants it, though. I mean, he's grabbing those bootstraps and really pulling yeah. himself up, you know? And honestly, I feel like that training montage at the beginning was probably my favorite anachronism of the whole thing because it was just like really good very clearly like a classic humorous training montage but they're like you know on horses and jousting and in the river or whatever (laughs) but uh the the other character in this who plays with his identity of course is prince will uh is yeah is prince edward um who hides his rank as the crown prince uh, so that he can compete in the in the joust exactly the way that William is hiding his identity. Um, and so, like, nobody can be who they want to be because of their social rank. They can't really be authentic because there's, like, this uh, social structure that's kind of inhibiting uh, their ability to be who they want to be. And, like, that seems to me to be, like, kind of the moral view of the story, um, but simultaneously, like it has Adamar, who is able to use uh, his social rank in order to hide who he is as a predator. Um, and so it's kind of saying that like like feudalism is dangerous mm-hmm. because it, in all kinds of ways, because it's punitive uh, to people who want to move around and, and have social mobility. And then simultaneously, it allows for abusive people to have a high rank that can't be taken away from them. And that's how you get the ending you get where they're saying, like, welcome to the new world. But then they kind of mess that up by not actually trying to deconstruct feudalism. Oh, I do want to say um, before we move on, like we were talking about Chaucer and everything. And um, I'm sure that people have at least heard of Chaucer, if not had to read him you know, in, in your senior year of high school or maybe college. Um, but something that a lot of people don't know about Chaucer is that he was a rapist. What? Um, oh. And so I always feel like that's important to point that out. You know, like I've read Canterbury Tales. They're very funny. The You know, the stories that are referenced by this movie are like hilarious. There's all about like the partner is like farting and making friars smell it and all of this stuff. You know, and so it's like very body and scatological and that like that. That's always going to make me happy. Um, but he was kind of uh, a shit heel. How do we know that he was a rapist? He worked for the government and he covered it up. There was at least one woman who came forward. And it, it seems like this might have not been an isolated incident. But like he paid off the woman and then had it covered up by the courts. So like her complaint was public, but the reason for it was was not. I see. Uh, and it, it was like uncovered much, much later, like centuries later. I see. Okay. But it's it's not a well-known thing. I mean, it is absolutely well-known within academia, but 
I feel like it's not something right. that's well known to the public. It's the kind of thing where it's like all of the Trosser experts know it, but mm-hmm. if all you did was read Canterbury Tales in high school prob- and watch this movie, probably not. Yeah, your English teacher is not going to mention it. And maybe even the writer of this uh, film didn't know about it. It's kind of an obscure fact, but it, I think it is important. Like, I love Chaucer in this movie, but it is um, something I think about every time yeah. that I watch it. Because in the movie, right, Paul Bettany just plays him as, like, a fun, charismatic guy with a gambling problem. Mm-hmm. Him also being, like, an unrepentant rapist is just, like, yeah, not in that character as it's presented no. here. Yeah, and so, yeah, and when we kind of romanticize and lionize a a person like that, I think it's important every single time that you do it to mention what he did to that woman and, you know, the way that he behaved afterwards. Yeah, for sure. um, Speaking of his gambling addiction, I just very briefly wanted to give the movie some props to have a character with a gambling addiction and have a character that is um, very ginger and very angry. And, you know, to have Will's father who is blind, but then all of those characters are very sympathetic and very functional and, you know, like are an important part of the society that forms around Will in this movie. And so I think that like, that's great that you have like some neurodiversity and people who are not like overcome by their afflictions in the movie. Like I really like that about this story. Yeah. Like when his dad becomes blind, he can't fix roofs anymore, but you know, he found like some other profession that he could do. And actually speaking of the gambling addiction, um, that was my roommate's other big complaint while watching the movie was that uh, the gold props, like gold is super heavy. It's like, two and a half times more dense and like heavier than steel. So like whenever they're like throwing the golden horses around, it's like, that doesn't look right. It's like when you're watching a TV (laughs) show and people are drinking out of coffee cups that are like clearly empty. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So you're talking about the trophies that they win at the the end of the tournaments. That they end up having to chop up to pay off his gambling debts. Yeah. I love how they treat those trophies. That's so good. Um, Yeah, I love the the whole plot line with the bet too, where they where they bet all their money against the French and uh, and it pays off. Okay, but why didn't they just tell him that he had to win for that reason? I know, right? <laughs> they, you know, to tell the truth, they actually should have. That's something that I've thought many times because it would have been more dramatic to have him. Uh, like we know the stakes, but he doesn't, and to have him actually choose between, like, to him. He's going to lose one tournament to prove to Jocelyn that he loves her. But actually, he's going to lose everything if he lost that. And he doesn't even know it. And he should have known it. Yeah. Because it would have made that choice matter. It would have made it better. And also, it would have, like, it's that whole false conflict thing where it's like, characters are just mm-hmm. not talking for no reason. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But they that that whole thing also is like a reference to Lancelot and uh, and Guinevere. She does the same thing to Lancelot. So I think this is probably the most beloved movie that we've covered on the podcast um, so far. We got a lot of feedback from people on Twitter about this movie. Um, so Mandy, uh, who's at Mandy K, said, love this movie. That's a lot of O's, if you couldn't tell. Uh, it was my introduction to Chaucer and the first movie I saw that had modern music mixed with a historical setting. It blew Teenage Mandy's mind. 
Rachel, who is at Far Flung Hope, said, I unabashedly adore this movie. So quotable. Might have been my first intro to Paul Bettany. When Chaucer showed up and I got the title reference, it sincerely blew my mind. I had that same feeling. Like, I think it was like the second time I watched it. I was like, wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love, I also, I love that they just call him Jeff the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. I like that. Um, Jen, who is at Generosity, says, I adore this movie. It's a perfectly delightful sports flick. Great cast as well. Lauren, who is at Lauren Bingham, says, I love it so much. It has amazing costumes and the music is phenomenal. I love the blend of modern and historical stuff. Catherine, who is at Adrian Austin 09, said, I saw it in the theater when it came out. I thought it was a lot of fun. I love the combination of medieval and classic rock. Also, my literature-loving self got a kick out of Chaucer. And then uh, Daniel, who is at Daniel Swenson, said, I remember reading an interview with the director where he said a rock music soundtrack for a movie in the Middle Ages was no more anachronistic than an orchestral soundtrack, and I've never gotten over it. Adore the movie. And that comment also blew my mind because <laughs> I just like hadn't even really thought about it. Um, but yeah, if you were going to do it with accurate music, it would have to be just like choral chants or something. Yeah, it's. I think that quote's actually from Rob- Roger Ebert. Oh, um, I see. And but it's it still applies. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Megan, who is at Here Be Megan, said, "It's silly and ridiculous, and I love it. I can't hear Golden Years without thinking of the dance scene in this movie." Paul Bettany is, of course, brilliant. Heath is at the peak of his charisma, and really all of the supporting cast is dynamite. Yeah, actually, thank you, Megan, um, because I feel like we have not talked about Heath Ledger enough in this movie. Like, I think uh, Paul Bettany's performance is, you know, maybe, like, the most captivating if you're just looking at it in isolation. But, of course, like, Heath Ledger carries this movie, and it would not work without him. And he does the whole, like earnest protagonist thing so well yeah it was nice of someone to give him a movie when he's like so disfigured and ugly yeah you're Um, right uh he's super 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 charming have you ever heard of uh an australian show called roar no like the roar of a lion he was um so there's like all kinds of great kind of pulpy b movie style um Australian action shows like Hercules and Xena um, kind of stuff. And Roar was one of those. And he, that's where he like got his chops. Cause he was the main character of that. It was like a medieval fantasy um, kind of show. And so this was like right at home for him. This was what he grew up on as an actor. Um, pretty easy for him to jump in there and start swinging a sword and riding horses <laughs> because like, that's what that whole show is. Nice. Uh, he looks very natural in the movie yeah. when he's doing all that stuff, I think. And of course I feel like I have to mention if you like Heath Ledger and old stuff, the movie 10 things I hate about you, which came out two years before this in 1999, um, of course was amazing. And like one of my, another one of my favorite movies, um, for my teenage years and he plays the lead in that there's a podcast called party bard um at party bard cast on twitter uh and they do i think it's it's not currently active um but there's quite a backlog of episodes and their first episode is all about 
uh, the movie 10 Things I Hate About You. And it's so good. Um, that podcast is co-hosted by Jack Rossiter Munley and Molly Booth. And then finally, uh, Rose, who's at Rose Embolism, said, it's a wonderfully silly film and I really liked the characters. Um, so clearly, Alan, you're not alone uh, in your adoration <laughs> for this movie. Right at the end there, uh, Megan and Rose um, both call the movie silly and, um, and like ridiculous, uh, but they love it anyway. And it it reminds me of um, one last thing I wanted to talk about. I, I wasn't trying to like build a critical theory when I watched this movie a gazillion times. I was just trying to like decode story. And like simultaneous to me watching this movie a lot of times was like also in investigating like my own identity and like my own politics and my sense of spirituality. And like I was reading the Tao Te Ching uh, every day and kind of discovering uh, Taoism for the first time and and slowly like converting over to philosophical Taoism. A really important precept in Taoism is this idea that there is no such thing as like, you should not think of things in terms of like good and bad. You should not think of like, this is a good movie or a bad movie. And like clearly with Megan and Rose here, they say that it's silly, um, but they love it. And there's, there's kind of like almost um, a little bit of a shame there. And that was a really important idea for me to be able to like learn about story through this movie, because once I really started to get into Taoism and stopped trying to like look at a story and and kind of like break it down mathematically of like there are 10 good things and there are three bad things therefore this movie is good like once i stopped doing that i started to understand what the movie actually was mm-hmm. and kind of go deeper into it and and not judge it um that like unlocked so many things for me uh, and I enjoy story so much more after I threw out the idea of like, you know, a story being good or bad. I just now try to understand what a story is and don't worry so much about like if it falls into like some kind of good taste or bad taste. Even if I don't enjoy something, it's still there's still a lot of pleasure in figuring out what it is and what it is about the story that is annoying me if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. So I would urge people to both not be ashamed of the things you love and maybe to not worry about judging them so much and you might uh, discover more pleasure uh, in enjoying them. So you talked at the beginning about what this episode meant to you when you were first watching it, but what has been your experience recommending it to other people and like, do you still enjoy it watching it now? Yeah, I still have like a very old DVD that I bought after I got rid of the blockbuster one. And I still love to watch this movie. And it was actually like a treat to watch it with my oldest daughter. And she's like, I think I've seen parts of this before. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure you have (laughs) because I still watch the movie all the time. Yeah. So I really enjoy it. And I've shared it with lots of people and, um, the most typical reaction is like that Chaucer guy is great. 
Yeah, I will say that like when I sit down to watch this movie with other people um, who are watching it for the first time, there's a part of the movie that cracks me up every time, even though I've heard the joke, even though I know the joke is coming. And usually the other person that I'm watching it with just looks at me as if I'm having a seizure or something <laughs> like, should I call an ambulance? What's It's this dumb English major joke that happens when uh, Chaucer meets uh, the, the people on the road and he's naked, you know. Jeffrey Chaucer's the name. Writing's the game. Chaucer? Geoffrey Chaucer, the writer? A what? A what? A writer? You know, I write with ink and parchment. For a penny, I'll scribble you anything you want from summonses, decrees, edicts, warrants, patents of nobility. I've even been known to jot down a poem or two of the muse descent. Probably read my book, Book of the Duchess. Fine, well, it was allegorical. Well, we won't hold that against you. That's for each man to decide for himself. <laughs> that made me laugh, too. I really enjoyed that part. <laughs> that joke is just such a great joke. It's such a nerdy joke. Uh, but it's definitely my favorite line of the whole movie. Yeah, the way that Mark Addy plays it and, and Paul Bettany, it's, like, perfect. Like, chef's kiss. Like, perfect. I love it. So I think that wraps up our discussion on A Knight's Tale. Uh, join us next month for an episode on Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine, a novel by Gail Honeyman. Uh, and so this is a book that we read recently in a kind of like online book club that we're a part of. Yeah, it's a really interesting book and I feel like in some ways kind of speaks to both you and me really deeply in kind of fundamentally different ways. Um, so I'm really excited to kind of talk through this in podcast form together. We've already discussed it um, quite a bit in our online forum. I'm not looking forward to it because I've managed to not cry on this podcast. And so like, there's a good chance that that streak will be broken. Obviously like being vulnerable in public is like a really hard thing to do but I think the book does touch on a lot of like really really important ideas um and so like if we can you know get more people to read the book um I think that'll be a good thing I mean not that Gail Honeyman really needs our help like obviously you know this is um it's a pretty popular novel and one that has uh you know ended up in like airport bookstores which honestly seems a little bit irresponsible because i hear that when you're flying it's much easier to cry anyway and so <laughs> i feel like the book is very funny too though we should say it's not just all yeah, yeah no. it's not just sad it's it's, it's not funny. yeah i think we're not selling this book properly it's not like just a tearjerker <laughs> it's like incredibly like funny and weird and twisted and amazing um and you like really learn to grow and love the characters, but also like a lot of the book deals with like how you get over your past emotional trauma. I'm excited to share it with people who haven't heard about it yet. And uh, I would definitely recommend that people read it. It's an amazing novel. It's a really amazing first novel. And I'm really looking forward to whatever Honeyman comes out with next. 
And with that, I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. You can follow the show on Twitter at HGStoryCast and visit our website at HGStoryCast.com. And if you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit HGStoryCast.com contact or send an email to contact at HallowedGroundMedia.com. Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.